Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by Alistair G. and Danny Angiano, authors of Fire in Paradise, an American Tragedy. Now, their book covers the horrific campfire in California, which was one of the deadliest and most destructive United States wildfires in a century. Welcome. Thanks so much. We're excited to be here. Let's go beyond the mic. Over 17 days, $16.5 billion in total damage, over 153,000 acres burned, and over 80 deaths. The campfire was the perfect storm of conditions and negligence. Yeah, it was a really remarkable fire. As you mentioned, it is the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in a century, the deadliest ever in California. And it was, as one person described it, it was the perfect fire. There was just a mix of conditions that made a fire like this. Well, I don't want to say inevitable, but it, it happened. I mean, you know, so the factors that went into it were, firstly, the incredible dry conditions in California drought over the past decade. It's a trend that's getting worse with the climate crisis. And so, you know, it was just very, very dry out there. After this, you had an electricity company, a utility, PG&E, with a history of sparking fires from its power lines. You had Californians living in places like Paradise, both because it was beautiful, but also because they were priced out of the biggest cities elsewhere in the state. And they were living in this very sort of beautiful, but also very dense community where it was, you know, there weren't many roads out. And so you add all these things together, you add a spark, and it was a recipe for disaster. Now, Danny, you lived just 20 minutes from Paradise for about 10 years. You once said, quote, it's places like Paradise I feel most at home in the world, unquote. Why was that? Um, well, part of it is because, you know, my family has lived in that area for generations. But I think it's also just sort of the unique small-town quality of places like Paradise. You know, when people think of California, I think they often think of Los Angeles or San Francisco. But Paradise was this small little settlement of 30,000 people nestled in the trees. It had so much natural beauty. I think that's part of what really drew people there. I mean, also the fact it's so much more affordable than most of the state. It is just a classic small-town America. When you were sent to cover the fire, it was more than just an assignment for the Guardian U.S. It was personal. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, when the fire first started, I was up that morning seeing what was happening and getting texts from family and friends who lived and worked there, messages saying, please pray for my town. And when it happened, you know, I, I told my editor at the Guardian that I should be the one to do it. Not only because I had the personal connection to the area, but also because I was a reporter in the area for several years. So I knew the community. I had a good sense of the layout. And that helped once I got there into total chaos where 30,000 people had been evacuated. The skies were orange. Everything was covered in smoke. You had people sleeping outside, hundreds of people sleeping outside because they'd lost their homes in the fire. Alistair, you were reading and editing the first reports from Paradise and Danny. When did the enormity of the story begin to hit you? I think it, it was in one of Danny's first stories she filed. And I, I was Danny's editor at first, and then we began to write together. And there was a quote that still sticks in my mind. It's from a spokesperson for one of the fire departments. And the spokesman said, Paradise, it's gone. The town is just gone. And I think that was what, just was so astonishing and hard to get your head around. This was a home of 30,000 people, you know, of neighborhood after neighborhood. They had a downtown. There were stores. It was, you know, when you think of small town, it had all of it. There was a Walmart. There was a Safeway, you know, and it was all 
you know, most of it was burned to the ground. Over 90% of its buildings were burned to the ground. There were towns, little little communities and incorporated communities all around Paradise had a similar fate. And so I think it was just this idea, you know, of something that is almost from wartime. You don't think of an American town just leveled to the ground. You know, you think of, when, when you think of that, you think of World War II maybe. You don't think of, you know, 21st century America. And yet this is what happened in California just a year and a half ago. Now, you're the editor of special series at The Guardian U.S. You've covered news around the world, foreign correspondent in Moscow. What did you see in Danny's work that made you want to write this book with her? Well, Danny, aside from the fact that she's just a brilliant all-around journalist and she's a great writer, you could just tell through her writing that she just got this area in a way that few other reporters did. She Prior to working at The Guardian, Danny had, in fact, worked at the local paper and had covered the town of Paradise for the Paradise Post, you know? So she just, she just got this place. And I think what's important about that is I didn't want to feel like I was an out-of-town reporter. I've lived in the Bay Area for 10 years, a couple hours away. I didn't want to feel like I was an out-of-town reporter parachuting in. And Danny was just, she was the sense check. She was, up, she was the guide rail for the project. She had a good sense of how people thought there, what made people tick, of what made, you know, she just thought the mentality and, and helped me understand it. So that was just essential, I think. We're joined on the star line, Alistair G. Denny Anguiano, authors of Fire in Paradise, an American Tragedy Beyond the Mic. Now, the stories you talk about in this book, touching, emotional, raw and sad. Was there ever a story that touched your heart that for some reason one reason or another, you just couldn't find a place in the book for it? Um, yeah, absolutely. There were several of those stories. The one that sticks out to me is about a man who perished in the fire, this elderly man at a senior home. He was the only person at the senior home to pass away in the fire. And he was one of just the classic characters of Paradise. He had gone to Harvard. He had been this big person in Hollywood and lived all over the world. And then he came to Paradise to retire with his wife. And one of the stories that stuck out to me is I met this woman who had worked as a caretaker for him at the senior home. And she told me how she had this orchid that belonged to his wife. And after she died, he refused to let anyone else touch it and how he would keep every single petal from the orchid. Um, And it was just something that I found so moving that I desperately wish we had gone to place more, but there are so many countless touching stories like that that we've learned in the course of our reporting. Yeah, one of the ones that sticks in my mind is, and it was really terrible, we listened to a lot of the recordings of 911 calls that people from Paradise made. And, you know, in and among all those recordings, you can literally hear people in their final moments. Some of those calls are just appalling. You know, people talking about their suffering in, in, in these very desperate moments. Those calls, I remember listening to one, you know, where, where several people, there are several victims on, on the line, and it just, you know, what, what people endured in that fire was just beyond imagining. And, you know, I think it was calls like that, hearing what people suffered through, that just bolstered our intention of, you know, not letting it just disappear into forgetfulness instead of bringing them to life somehow and preserving them in those stories. 
Alistair, was there one interview in your career that you weren't prepared for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think of um, <laughs> absolutely. I think of one interview that we did for this book, and it was with a gentleman whose wife didn't know what happened to her. She disappeared in the fire. He was stuck out of town. You know, I didn't know much more of his story aside from that. I just knew that he could stuck out of town. His wife was in town, and I didn't know what happened next. And when I spoke to him, I learned that he'd actually, in order to try and get to his wife, he and a friend had actually broken through a police roadblock to try and get into paradise. And they had fed at 100 miles per hour up this road, just trying to get to this side home to try and find out what happened to his wife. And when I heard that, I was just so moved. You know, he's an older guy, his, his desperation and, and the grief he was feeling and the need to know, the need to see what happened to his house, it just shone through. And I was, I was, just, I had no idea that happened and, and was unprepared to hear it. And it was still the image of him, you know, in his four wheeler breaking through a roadblock, his roadblock just still sticks with me. Danny, will paradise ever be the same again? I think the conclusion that, you know, that we have drawn with help from the residents, there is no paradise. One woman said it best at the quote that always sticks with me. She said, the town that I knew is gone. It's never coming back. You know, Paradise is a town that's, that's trying to rebuild. It's got about maybe 15% of the population that used to be there before. But I think everyone's really accepted that it'll be a very different place. Not only because, you know, many of them are still living among some of the ruins of that fire, but also just because what they loved about that town, it's history, its affordability, you know, that's all kind of been wiped away. And some people have decided that they are excited about the new paradise, and, and some people are, are still grieving. We're joined on the Star Line by Danny Angiano and Alistair G., authors of Fire in Paradise and American Tragedy Beyond the Mic. What's the importance of a free and open press in your minds? Oh, it's essential. You know, doing this book, we were aided by being able to collect documents from various government agencies that helped us put together and understand this story. Without that, you know, I think it would be much harder to piece together what happened that day, what went wrong. I wonder how much we would know about PG&E and their fault in all of it. You know, it was their power line that started the fire in the first place. So absolutely essential. I think of prior to living in the U.S., I, I reported in Russia for four years. And so I had a very different experience of being a journalist there, you know, when I worked there, it was almost like journalists were there. They were just tolerated, but it, it didn't feel like you were ever accepted. It felt like the government was listening to you, watching you. You know, I spoke to people whose phones were tapped. I went to press conferences, and the secret services were there, like asking intimidating questions. Journalists got arrested. I got arrested there. And then coming to the U.S., the openness here and the, and the freedom to report, it's just it's incredible. It's something that I just really value having lived in a place where that wasn't a given, just being able to ask questions here, to be able to expect an answer, you know, government agencies or politicians or whoever it is will take you seriously and you'll be able to try and get as accurate data as you can, you know, for anything. That, that just feels so wonderful and the experience that that wasn't the case at all. So I, I think a free press is just it's crucial. Danny, you've said, quote, 
you're riding your way to the moon, lover of sparkles, penguins, and baking, unquote. What's your favorite thing to bake? Uh, you've done some very thorough research. Uh, my favorite thing to bake is brownies with coconut flour. I have been known to bake them two or three times a week and maybe share some with my husband. Not always. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocking Eight. Eight random questions answered with the first thing that comes to your mind. Since we have two guests, we'll go with the rule of ladies first. Favorite thing to do while under quarantine? Oh, hanging out with my cat, definitely. Getting lots of time in, lots of snuggles. I've gone plants crazy. I've been ordering all kinds of exotic and weird plants from Stewart Nurseries in Florida and just getting them delivered to my apartment. I'm really enjoying it. Okay, what's the favorite plant that you had delivered? I am I am California. You can grow all kinds of plants, particularly succulents and cactus. So I've just gone a little bit succulent crazy. They're so beautiful and sculptural. So I've been ordering very, very weird cacti and succulents. <laughs> well, what's your favorite sports teams, guys? Oh, San Francisco 49ers. My dad had me in a 49ers onesie from, I think, the time I was like three weeks old. I'm going to say Manchester United Soccer Club. I'm from the city of Manchester in the UK. My first ever big sports match was when I was 12, going to Old Trafford, which is the home of Manchester United, to see a big game. Do you remember who they played? Yes. It's a a team with a weird name called Sheffield Wednesday. Tell me one thing you sacrificed while writing this book. Oh, I would say, you know, time with family and friends and my husband. I became infamous for saying, not right now, I'm working on the book. Yeah, I think any kind of free time. I think the longest phone call of my life was with Danny when we were going through one final passage of the manuscript. And, you know, I came home from work. We got on the phone maybe at 10 p.m. We got off the phone at 6.30 a.m. the next morning, and then I went to work again. I saw that on Twitter. I was like, what the hell? All night? Okay. How do you guys clear writer's block? Oh, gosh. I wish I knew. I'm usually by pacing around my apartment. (laughs) That's what I do, pacing around my apartment and then forcing myself to read great writing. Usually if I have writer's block, it's due to a lack of focus. But if I sit down and force myself to read a great writer... That really helps. I think just get the words on the page. I find that often staring at the blank screen is really intimidating. You have ideas buzzing in your head, but you don't know how to translate them into words or sentences. And so often I'll just write really, really stupid things. I like to just write a verb, an adjective. Like there won't be four sentences. I'll just put my ideas on the page in whatever, you know, seemingly stupid form they come out. And you know, once you've done that, it seems to loosen something up a little bit. And then once you've got those dumb seeming words on the page, then you can start to make them seem a little bit better and you can craft them a bit. So I can just get something or anything on the page. What's your favorite scent? Ooh, that's a good one. For me, probably lavender, both because I like the smell and because I find it very relaxing. My favorite scent is probably the scent of Plumerias, which is this exotic tree you get in tropical places like Hawaii or Florida as well. Plumeria. How about favorite bird? Favorite bird? Well, I think you know the answer to that one. It remains after all these years, penguins. I'm going to say golden eagle. Which family from the book haunts you the most? Oh, 
for me, that's not the, the Sedgwick family. That is the story of this 82-year-old firefighter and his daughter, Sky. John woke up that morning, what's the name of the firefighter, and told his daughter that there was a fire coming and that she needed to go. But he himself decided to stay and to help out the firefighters working to control this massive blaze and to save some of these landmarks that have been so important to him for so many decades, like this firehouse that was, you know, over a century old. For me, it's a woman I met called Iris and her partner of 28 years, Andrew, and they love to collect antiques and do thrifting. Their home was full of this beautiful glassware. And Iris worked outside Paradise during the week, and so on the morning of the fire, she was trying to call Andrew, trying to tell him to get out. Andrew had a disability. He wasn't able to move very well. Um, and so I, you know, I just think back to their, their really terrible phone conversations and, and her urging him to leave and, and the difficulties that he was facing getting out. And finally, what's the next project that you want to tackle? <laughs> um, you know, that is an excellent question. One that I'm still trying to figure out the answer to. Um, I think, to be honest, there's still some, you know, there's still lots of reporting left to be done on Paradise, and I think that will probably keep my attention for a while. I've been dreaming of writing a novel for the longest time, and I've been writing short stories off and on for years, so I think, I think fiction is the next nut I need to crack. Alistair G., Denny Angiano, authors of Fire in Paradise, an American Tragedy, available now at a retailer near you or online. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh. That was a lot of fun, and you were very thorough. I'm quite impressed. I forgot about my medium profile from college. <laughs> I love this. That was great. That yeah. was really fun. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.